The message of the cross is meant for our salvation. Uh, There is no salvation from sin apart from the atoning work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Uh, He paid for the sins of His elect there at the cross. And because Jesus paid for our sins, when we believe in Him as Lord and Savior, by God's grace we are justified. Uh, This is the only way of salvation. Uh, This is the only way to a right standing with God. This is the only way to heaven uh, through Jesus Christ's finished work at the cross which was followed by His triumphant resurrection on the third day, in which the Father declared uh, that He had accepted Christ's sacrifice for our sins. However, the message of the cross is not only meant for our salvation from God's condemnation, it's not only meant for the salvation from the penalty of sin, But the message of the cross is also meant to transform our mindset as believers. The message of the cross is meant to transform our values as followers of Jesus Christ. The message of the cross is meant to transform the way that we live as those who believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians... Um, has brought up the gospel very early on. He spoke in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, about the message of the cross, the message of Christ and Him crucified. A message that is folly to the world, uh, but to those who are called by God, are seen rightly to be the, the wisdom of God. Paul has brought up the gospel Uh, Not because the Corinthians were not saved. Uh, He has addressed them as saints. He has brought up the gospel because of the fact that the Corinthian church was still thinking like the world. And because they were still thinking like the world, they were still living like the world, however they were doing it in the church. And he brings up the message of the cross... Because the message of the cross is to transform the Corinthians' mindset. That they would no longer think in a worldly way, but now they would think in a cross-centered, Christ-centered way. And we as a church, we are to learn from this. Uh, This book was inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, for our edification What Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was not only essential for the Corinthian church to hear, but it's essential for us today as the church of Jesus Christ to hear and to understand uh, and to, to really allow it to transform our mindset and our living. As we said before, uh, Paul did not address the problems in the church by just saying, knock it off. Stop doing this, start doing this. No, he went to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem was worldly thinking rather than gospel-centered thinking. And so this is going to challenge us this morning as Paul really comes in full force in bringing the truth to bear upon the lives of the Corinthians and upon our own lives. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. If you're able, please stand in honor of the Word of God. 
verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I thank God, I'm sorry, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak. But you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world the refuse of all things. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We see, first of all, in this passage, the sin of pride. We see the sin of pride in verse 6. Take a close look with me at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul speaks here in this verse of things that he has applied to himself and to Apollos. Apollos was a man who had ministered the word of God in Corinth after Paul had ministered the word of God in Corinth. Uh, We read in Scripture that Apollos was known for his eloquence and his competence in the Scriptures. We read in the the book of Acts that the Ephesian church had sent Apollos to minister in the Corinthian church. Now, Apollos had a different style than the Apostle Paul. Yet, like Paul, Apollos was used of the Lord to build up the church in Corinth for a period of time. When Paul writes this, Paul, uh, it is a time when Apollos has already left Corinth, Paul had been there for 18 months, he left, Apollos came, he was there a period of time, Apollos left, now Paul writes this letter to the church. And Paul says that the things that he has spoken of uh, earlier on in this letter, he has applied to himself and Apollos. He's talking about three metaphors that he used in chapter 3 verse 5 through chapter 4 verse 5. The first metaphor that he has in mind that he applied to himself and Apollos was the metaphor of servants who plant and water a field. The Apostle Paul said that that he was a a, a servant uh, who had planted that field. Uh, He had planted the church as he proclaimed the gospel as the first one to do so in Corinth. And then after the Apostle Paul planted that field, that the Apostle, I'm sorry, that Apollos 
was sent by the Lord as a servant to water that field, uh, to minister the word for the growth of these new believers, for the growth of the church. So the first metaphor was servants who plant and water a field. The second metaphor that Paul has in mind is that of a skilled master builder uh, who lays a foundation and a worker who builds upon the foundation. Paul said that when he was in Corinth, he was there like a skilled master builder laying a foundation. He laid the foundation of the church in Corinth as he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that Apollos was like a worker who came and built on the foundation uh, that the Apostle Paul had laid down. As the Apostle, I'm sorry, as Apollos continued the ministry of the word there for the upbuilding of the church. And the third metaphor that Paul has in mind here is that of stewards who serve a master, dispensing on the master's behalf what the master entrusts to them. Paul had said that both he and Apollos were the Lord's stewards. Uh, They were the Lord's stewards who had been entrusted by their master, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the responsibility of dispensing the word of God centered on Christ and Him crucified on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church there in Corinth. So they were stewards, they were servants, to whom their master, Christ, had entrusted responsibility. He had entrusted to them the mysteries of God that they were to faithfully dispense on the Lord's behalf. Now I want you to observe in our text in verse 4, the purpose for which Paul has applied these metaphors to himself and Apollos. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He says that he has applied these things to himself and to Apollos that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now what Paul meant by this would have been clear to the Corinthians. However, not being in their position, it is not as clear to us what Paul means here. However, any other time that Paul refers to what is written, he refers to Scripture. So it appears that here in this verse, when he refers to what is written, he is referring to Scripture, perhaps to the Scriptures that he has already quoted. I want us to take us back to those Scriptures that he has already quoted. Go back to chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Go down to verse 31. Verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Go to chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Go to chapter 3, verse 19. It's chapter 3, verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, 
For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Now you come to our text, chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, I've applied all these things, those metaphors that I've mentioned to you, to myself and Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Probably not to go beyond what is written in the Scriptures, including those verses that Paul has quoted from the Old Testament. What the Apostle Paul has been teaching is rooted in the Scriptures. Unlike the wisdom, quote-unquote wisdom, toward which the Corinthians gravitated. Paul has applied biblical truth so that the Corinthians may learn to have a biblical view of Apollos and a biblical view of Paul. A view of their leaders that does not go beyond the truths of Scripture. This may be what Paul is saying here. He goes on further about talking of his purpose with applying these metaphors to himself and Apollos. He says in verse 6, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, now Paul rebuked this kind of behavior earlier in the letter. Um, Back in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, uh, we have his rebuke of this behavior. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. There's that party spirit. And now Paul speaks in our text, chapter 4, verse 6, of the heart attitude behind that boasting. He says, I I write this, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Well, the New American Standard translates it, that none of you may become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. ESV, puffed up. New American Standard, arrogant. Same idea. They're quarreling, they're divisions, they're boasting. It was all rooted in pride. It was all rooted in a, a puffed up mind. Just as our quarreling, our division, our boasting is rooted in pride. Paul has been teaching and applying biblical truth in order to sever the root of pride. Pride always runs contrary to truth. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, we read of the serious nature of pride. When we read, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, and the first that's given in the list is haughty eyes. In verse 17. Haughty eyes is a poetic way of speaking about pride. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. What tops the list is pride. Pride is an abomination in God's sight. God hates pride. The last one in that list is one who sows discord among brothers. That comes in verse 19. And that's where pride always leads in the church. Pride always leads to 
discord among brothers. What is pride? Stuart Scott has written an excellent booklet titled From Pride to Humility. And in that booklet, Stuart Scott writes, When someone is proud, they are focused on self. And Scott defines pride as, quote, the mindset of self. It's a a master's mindset rather than that of a servant. A a focus on self and the service of self. A pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for self. What is the opposite of pride? The opposite is humility. Stuart Scott writes of humility, he says, when someone is humble, they're focused on God and others, not self. And he helpfully defines humility as, quote, the mindset of Christ, that is a servant's mindset, a, a focus on God and others, a pursuit of the recognition and the exaltation of God, and a desire to glorify and please God in all things and by all things he has given. That's humility, the opposite of pride. In our text, Paul identifies pride as the root of the Corinthians' problems that he has been addressing. They were puffed up in favor of one leader against another, one teacher against another. Puffed up in favor of one against another. And as becomes clear in the following verses, Paul has in mind a large faction in the church that was puffed up in favor of Apollos against Paul. In this passage that we are studying this morning, Paul will admonish them as a father does his beloved children. He does not come against them like an enemy. He comes as a father, lovingly admonishing his children. Now, everything that Paul has been saying in the body of this letter starts to come to a climax here in our text. Uh, We have seen the sin of pride. Paul has identified uh, pride at the, the, the heart of the problems within the church. And in the next verse, Paul will expose the roots of the Corinthians' pride. Pride is the root of their wrong behavior, and pride has its own roots that we will see here in verse 7. Look at the roots of pride in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here in this verse, Paul switches from using second person plural pronouns to second person singular pronouns. We don't have that difference in English. But Spanish has that difference. Many languages have that difference. Back in verse 6, he was using plural pronouns. Like, you all. Speaking to all of you as a group. Now in verse 7, he speaks to each one individually. He says, for who sees anything different in you? And he's pointing his finger at each individual. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That first question, who sees anything different in you, is rendered by the New American Standard as, for who regards you as superior? That is superior to another faction in the church. 
Specifically, who regards you as superior to the small Paul faction? Remember, there was that group that said, I am of Paul. The obvious answer to this rhetorical question, who sees anything different in you or who regards you as superior, the obvious answer is no one with any authority. Their superiority was self-proclaimed. They were proclaiming their own superiority. When we are puffed up in pride, we are proclaiming our own superiority. And when we do this, we are usurping God's authority to judge. Paul's second question in verse 7 is, What do you have that you did not receive? The Bible teaches that every good thing we have is ultimately owing to God's grace. That we cannot take credit for anything good that we have. This truth is a fundamental component of a biblical worldview. I want you to turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. To see another passage that speaks of this. But speaks of it directly. Rather than using a rhetorical question. James chapter 1. Beginning at verse 16. In verse 16 we read, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. James gives us a comprehensive statement. Every good gift, there is no exceptions, every good gift and every perfect gift is from God. Every single one. And then he zeroes in on the gift of spiritual life in verse 18, when he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is speaking about our regeneration. It's speaking about our salvation when God took us from being spiritually dead and He made us alive in Christ Jesus. Of God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So spiritual life is from God. Spiritual life is a gift of God's grace. It's not something that we can take credit for. We have received it as a gift from God. Turn over to John chapter 3, verse 27, which is similar. The Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 27. We have a heart that has a tendency towards pride. And so we tend to take credit for what we have. The scriptures counter that. John chapter 3 verse 27. We have words from John the Baptist. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And in context, what John has in mind is a person's place in God's plan. A person's place in life. 
A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. It was given John the Baptist from heaven to be the forerunner of the Messiah. That was his role that God gave to him. That was from heaven. A great statement here. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The Bible is clear. No one is self-made. The Corinthians' connection with Apollos was from God as God had sent Apollos to them as the Lord's servant to minister to them. Their connection with Apollos was from God and from God's grace. The Corinthians' salvation was from God and from God's grace. The spiritual gifts that the Corinthians possessed were from God and His grace. Their progress in in the Christian life was from God and His grace. Just as everything good that you have, brothers and sisters, that everything that you have, my friends, is from God and His grace. Coming back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul continues with a third question. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? With this rhetorical question, the Apostle Paul is communicating quite clearly God's grace leaves no room for boasting. Rather than boasting in what we have, we are to give thanks to the giver. We're to give thanks to God. As Paul modeled back in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians and look at verses 4 through 9. Look at how Paul modeled thanksgiving for what God had given. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So, Paul, right away in this letter, communicates to them, he gives thanks to God for them. He gives thanks to God for the grace that God has given to the Corinthians in Christ. He he elaborates upon this, verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a pretty comprehensive thanksgiving. For what God's grace has done in and will do in the lives of the Corinthians. And for this... Paul models giving thanks to God. They cannot take credit for any material good that they have. It's from God and they cannot take credit for any spiritual good, any wisdom that they have. Any good gift, any perfect gift is from God. So coming back to our text, chapter 4, verse 7, we have these three questions in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? When you and I are puffed up in pride, we need to be admonished by these three questions. Who regards you as superior? No one with any authority does. 
What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. If then you received everything good that you have, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? These questions go to the roots of our pride, exposing our pride that we might confess it to our Heavenly Father and forsake it. Now, what makes our own pride so hard to recognize is the self-deception of pride. The self-deception of pride. Which we see in verse 8, where Paul switches back to second person plural pronouns. So now the focus is on you as a group. He says in verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. Paul uses severe language from here through the rest of this passage. But his tone is not the tone of lashing out. His tone is that of a loving father admonishing his children. I want you to go down to verse 14 where we see that. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. That's his purpose. That's his tone. Paul, here in verse 8 and following, is not seeking to hurt the Corinthians, but rather to convict them, to correct them, that they would grow in Christ. And he says, already you have all you want. Well, the New American Standard You are already filled. I I think that's a better translation. You are already filled. The picture is that of people who have eaten a full meal. And Paul here is speaking sarcastically. He will say in verse 11, To the present hour, we apostles hunger. The Corinthians looked down on him and the other apostles for that. For that, 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 that weakness. Of, of being without food. And as they looked down on Paul for that, they acted as if they were already filled. The next statement is similar in verse 8. Already you have become rich. Paul will say in verse 11, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. That's the condition of Paul and the apostles. And the Corinthians, again, they looked down on him for this as well. And in so doing, they they acted as if they had already become rich. Paul goes on in verse 8, Without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. The NIV translates, You have begun to reign. The New Testament teaches that believers will reign with Christ after Christ returns. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say, If we have died with Christ, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. After Jesus Christ returns, we as believers will reign with Christ. Revelation 3.21 The one who conquers, that is, perseveres to the end, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me, Christ is speaking, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Christ promises the believer, after Jesus comes again, we will sit with Him on His throne. We will rule and reign with Him. Now Paul is saying to the Corinthians, 
you are acting as if you have already begun to reign. And that without us apostles. Now Paul would like it very much if the Corinthians were reigning, because then Paul would be reigning as well in a glorified state with Christ. There is coming a time when believers will be filled. There's coming a time when believers will inherit the riches of Christ's future kingdom. There is coming a time when believers will reign with Christ, but that time is not yet. Pride gives us an elevated view of ourselves. and makes us look down on others. And this makes pride self-deceiving. The Corinthians were walking the way of pride as they continued to embrace the wisdom of the world. But Christ redeemed us so that we would walk in a new way, and that is the way of the cross. And we see in the rest of this passage, verses 9-13, through the contrast between the way of pride and the way of the cross. The Apostle Paul is walking the way of the cross. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We have another metaphor here, that of prisoners in a Roman triumph who have been condemned to die in the arena. You see, after a Roman general conquered a a group of people, whether that would be a a city or whatever political area, after a Roman general conquered, he would return to his homeland and lead a splendid parade called a triumph. The general and his armies would be at the front of this victory parade, and they would display in the parade the booty that they had taken. After the the general and his armies and the the booty were, were, were brought through in that parade, It was at the end of the procession were the captives. The the captives that had been taken, who had been condemned to die in the arena. These captives would be taken to the arena where they would continue to be made a spectacle. They they were a spectacle in in this, this procession, and they would continue to be a spectacle in the arena. Well over 10,000 people could gather in the arena to watch these individuals be killed. Anyone and everyone could come. And in the arena, they would either be forced to fight to the death as gladiators, or they would be killed by wild beasts. All of this amounted to heaping shame on the captives. And for the thousands of people who would watch in the arena, this was entertainment. Now Paul uses that metaphor, and he says here in our text, God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. What we see here is that that God had sent the apostles into a hostile world where they would publicly suffer shame. The apostles always faced the possibility of being killed as they carried out their ministry for Christ's sake. And if they were killed, the world would rejoice. They suffered ridicule 
They suffered hatred. They suffered abuse and the possibility of death while the whole universe watched. Now let me ask you, who experienced this before the apostles experienced it? Their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was sent into a hostile world where he publicly suffered the shame of the cross. Christ was denied the comforts of life. And for him, death was not a possibility. Death was what the world inflicted upon him. Death by crucifixion. The most shameful form of execution. It was done very publicly in order to shame the individual and to intimidate the rest of society that they would never do what that man did. Christ, on the way to the cross, He suffered ridicule. He suffered hatred. He suffered abuse. And the whole world watched. Roman soldiers crucified Him. Jewish leaders were there at the foot of the cross mocking Him. He was crucified before the eyes of the world. He was made a spectacle. When the apostles lived out, what we're reading here in verse 9, they were walking the way of the cross. They were walking the way of their Master. They were walking the way of their crucified Messiah. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul is saying the world sees the apostles as fools. They're proclaiming a foolish message. A message of a, of a crucified Messiah, a crucified Savior, a contradiction in terms. They saw the apostles as utterly foolish. That they, but for the sake of this foolish message, that they would walk right into persecution, ridicule, even possible martyrdom. What fools. So we are fools for Christ's sake. So the world saw the apostles as fools, they continued on for Christ's sake. And in contrast, Paul sarcastically calls the Corinthians wise in Christ. They, 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 they seek the world's favor, catering to the world's wisdom in the name of Christ. We saw that before. And how they were enamored with the wisdom of the world. And so, when... One of the preachers seemed to reflect the wisdom of the world and the eloquence of the world in their preaching. Oh, they elevated that preacher. Paul says, sarcastically, you are wise in Christ. You seek the world's favor, catering to the world's wisdom in the name of Christ. In addition, 
We see here the apostles live in human weakness and they don't try to hide it. You see that in this, the second line in verse 10. We are weak, but you are strong. The apostles lived in human weakness and they did not try to hide that weakness. Because they knew the truths of chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, which I want you to look back at. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. These truths that they knew. Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 3, And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The apostles knew that. And, and so they lived in the weakness that God allotted to them, and they did not try to hide that weakness. In contrast, Paul sarcastically says to the Corinthians, but you are strong. In other words, the Corinthians were mindful that the world in which they lived despised weakness and praised strength, and so they tried to give the appearance of strength. Just the opposite of the apostles, who didn't hide their, their weakness. Paul goes on in our text, in chapter 4, You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. The Corinthians had the world's favor, and in contrast, the world looked down on the apostles. Unlike the Corinthians, the apostles didn't elevate the wisdom of a world that made the decision to crucify Christ. Unlike the Corinthians, the apostles did not embrace what a world that opposes God calls strength. Unlike the Corinthians, the apostles were not captivated by honor from those who had rejected Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. In verse 11, Paul goes on, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Now understand that these are things that the Corinthians disdained. They disdained them because their culture disdained them. Worldly wisdom disdained these things. Hunger, thirst, being poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, working with one's own hands. These are, are things that the Corinthians disdain. But because of the kind of ministry that the Lord gave to the apostles, and the persecution that they suffered, they sometimes had to go about without food and drink. The apostles often did not have all the clothing that a person would desire. They were sent by Christ with the gospel of Christ, to a lost and dying world. And they, they, they would go to regions where the name of Christ was not proclaimed. And amidst persecution, they would proclaim the gospel and they would, would plant a church. And they would keep going further and further with the gospel. And, and, and Paul, you know, he, he for, for various reasons, he, he would... At different times, he would not receive financial support from the church that he was ministering to because he did not want in any way for this to discredit his ministry. And so he and the other apostles at times would be without food. 
sometimes because of the persecution, sometimes without anything to drink, oftentimes without all the clothing that we would want, buffeted, homeless. That they were buffeted means that they were roughly treated, as the New American Standard renders it. That they were homeless means that they were like their master. In Luke 9.58, Jesus said to a man, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Jesus, during His public ministry, had no place to call home. And neither did the apostles. Paul speaking of his weaknesses. He goes on and he says, We labor working with our hands. As Acts 18 verse 3 says, Paul worked as a tent maker in Corinth as he did in some other places where he ministered. He worked with his hands making tents. And he did so in spite of the fact that Greeks disdained manual labor. They looked down on people who performed manual labor, including tent making. The the, the Greeks were of the opinion that physical labor was to be performed by slaves. By working with his hands, Paul lowered his status in the eyes of local citizens. Well-to-do citizens of Corinth would have been embarrassed to ask their friends to come and hear someone who lived by manual labor. And yet Paul lived in this way. He brings it up here. While the Corinthians were filled, rich, and living as kings... Paul and the other apostles hungered, thirsted, were poorly dressed, were buffeted, and were without a home. In other words, the apostles looked more like their Lord than the Corinthians did. For we read the prophecy of Christ in Isaiah 53, verse 2b through 3. Isaiah 53, 2b through 3. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Who looked more like that? Paul or the Corinthians? Paul looked more like that. Let's continue on in verse 12. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The apostles were reviled. That is, they were verbally abused. They were cursed. They were mocked. And Paul says they responded not as the world does, trying to get even, but rather they responded by blessing those who reviled them. Just like Jesus taught His disciples to do, and as Jesus actually did. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, of how Jesus suffered like this. 1 Peter 2, 23. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. The apostles followed Christ's example. They walked the path of the cross. Paul says the apostles were persecuted. And they endured it. They didn't try to get out of it. They didn't try to avoid it. They were persecuted and they endured it. Just as Christ endured the cross. The apostles, Paul says, were slandered by the world. People told lies about them. 
They were slandered by the world. And Paul says they responded, not as the world does, with, with anger and lashing out, but they responded to those who slandered them by entreating. That, that is, by calling upon their slanderers to repent, that they might be made right with God. Paul says at the end of verse 13, We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Scum and refuse are synonyms in the original language. Both words mean the waste that is removed in the process of cleaning something. These words scum and refuse could refer to the sweepings from a floor. You know, if you have a kitchen, you probably don't have carpet there in your kitchen because of the fact that all kinds of things fall on that floor. And if you have young children, you know, a lot of things may fall on that floor. And so you may sweep that floor every day, or you might wait, wait a week and sweep it. Think about what you sweep up there. Nothing good. It can be disgusting. It's dirty. Once you sweep it up, where does it go? It just goes out into the trash. It's discarded. That's what this word refers to. Both words. Or, or, or the dirt that's removed from a body. You know, you're, you're very dirty, then you, you take a bath or a shower. These words could refer to that, that dirt that's rinsed off of your body, that's cleaned off that body. It's scum. You just want it to go down the drain. Don't want to stay around. Or we could think of the scum that we clean out of a, of a drain pipe. That's what I have to do tomorrow. I have several drains in our house that are, have become very slow. Why is that? Because there's all kinds of hair and soap scum uh, that's built up over the months in those drains, and so I have to take them apart and take out all that scum. Now, what do I, what do, I do with that scum after I take it out? Get rid of it. Throw it out. This is the idea in mind with these words, refuse and scum. When Paul says, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is what the world thought of Paul and the other apostles. And Paul and the other apostles, they didn't try to avoid the world seeing them this way. They didn't soften the message. They didn't adjust the message to, to avoid being seen this way. No, they were faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. They knew they would have to give an account to their master for faithfully dispensing the word that he entrusted to them. And so they're not adjusting the message. They're not softening the sharp edges of the gospel. They're proclaiming it as Christ gave it to them. And consequently, in the minds of those who are perishing, the apostles are the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, this is not surprising, for this is what the world thought of Christ. Just look at the cross. The world took Christ, and they heaped on Him the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate shame in flogging Him, stripping His clothes off of Him, and crucifying Him on a cross in front of the world 
to see. That's how the world viewed Christ. The scum, the refuse of the world that is to be discarded, rejected. This is what the world thought of the apostles because they faithfully proclaimed Christ and Him crucified. A message that is folly to those who are perishing. We continue in verse 14. This is, this is going to be for next time, but I just want to remind you of what Paul will say here in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul has written these things because the Corinthians were still following the wisdom of the world, which puffed them up and led them to look down on the Apostle Paul. In the name of Christ, they sought to please the world. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you like this? Do you seek to please the world? Are you puffed up in pride and looking down on others? Are you like this? As believers, we follow a master who called us with these words. In Luke 9, verse 23 and 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The gospel of Christ turns our values upside down. The world values physical strength, eloquence of words, worldly wisdom. And the Corinthians were looking for those things in their leaders. The gospel says, all of that amounts to nothing in God's sight. And actually, it can be offensive to God because it takes us away from Him. And we start boasting in man rather than boasting in God. And the gospel calls us to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus as our Lord and Master. And Jesus made clear to His disciples that there is a cost for following Him. The world will not like you. In fact, the world will hate you. In fact, the world will will persecute you. In fact, the world might even take your life. Following Jesus is not continuing to live as you always lived before, just adding Jesus to your life. The gospel calls for conversion. Turning from the path that you were walking on, the path of the world and its wisdom, to walking a new path going in the opposite direction, the path of Christ and the cross. And so once we were of the mindset of living for self, once we were of the mindset of exalting self, and now we're called to deny self. Now we're called to submit to the Lordship of Christ, to follow Him, to be His representative in this world. And if He was mistreated, we will be mistreated. If he was persecuted, we will be persecuted. 
is the expectation. And so the gospel turns everything upside down. And that hadn't happened in the mindset of the Corinthians. That hadn't happened in, in the way that they were conducting themselves in the church. And so Paul admonishes them as a father. And this passage admonishes us as well. If we have been walking in worldly wisdom, if, if we have been valuing the things that the world values, rather than following Christ and walking the path of the cross, the path of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus whatever the cost is, not ashamed of Christ, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, being faithful to Christ. Christ doesn't call us to have a certain you know, amount of, of, of results in, in ministry like we've seen before. He simply calls for faithfulness. Follow me faithfully. Day by day, week by week, it's not glamorous. It's not something that you're going to get accolades from the world for. But you follow Christ because He has redeemed you. And you love Him. And you follow Christ knowing that one day we will give an account to our Master. We want to please our Master. We want to do our Master's will. But we have to understand that means making a break with the world's wisdom. Making a break with the world's values. And adopting the values of the Gospel. The values of the cross. The values of Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We pray, Father, that you would use it in our hearts and lives for our growth in Christ, for equipping us for every good work. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for where we have not been faithful to Christ, where we have not given you thanks, but rather have boasted in men. Help us, Father, to, to live out the gospel, to truly take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.